This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Just let grace speak true. This is the kingdom. You're listening to the End Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. With your no good and camp, you are tuned into the and campaigns church politics podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the West Side Chicago representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, the right reverend Christopher Butler. What's going on, Rev? How you doing? I am doing well, sir. How are you? I can't complain, man. As you know, we came out with an article on Monday called Biden's Mandate. And really what we were trying to do, and y'all all need to go check it out. It's still floating around and doing pretty well on the on the uh, social media. But what we were trying to do was lay out what the people authorized Biden to do. What should be his priorities? Obviously, COVID, uh, restoring, uh, you know, the trust and all that other stuff in the, uh, the the presidency. But what ha- what did the people ask him to do? And what were some of the things that the people didn't ask him to do? And so that uh, was been pretty well received. I mean, we got some crit- criticism as always, too. But we weren't really offering an analysis of the first, what, two or three days of his administration. We were kind of laying out what the expectation should be and what he should be focused on. Chris, any thoughts just in general about that article? I just that it was it was uh, fun to write, but I think it's important uh, as we get into this administration. Like you said, we're, we're not judging the administration. He has not been president for a week. Um, we are just setting the table. And I think it's important for uh, for a lot of folks to to check it out and come into this presidency with the right kind of mindset. Yeah, I would agree. So you can go uh, to the crux and the dot com to go check out that uh, article. It's called Biden's mandate. Uh, you could also see it on our, um, our our Twitter page and all that. Y'all know where to go. But I would also ask you to rate this uh, to go to iTunes or whatever you listen to, to this on it and actually rate uh, this podcast that really helps us get to more people. And so if you enjoy this, tell some people about it, but also rate it and give us some comments so people know how you feel about this show. Uh, we've got quite a show again for you today. So as always, grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but as a Christian. So let's go ahead and, and take it on. Uh, as many of you know, I don't want to insult your intelligence. Many of you know that passing legislation is the job of Congress. It's a process that takes time and often frustrates the executive branch. When the president first comes into office, passing legislation, at least passing significant legislation, is usually something that they can't do immediately since it has to go through our bicameral legislative branch. However, there are some things that the administration can do. The administration can pass executive orders unilaterally. Executive orders aren't as far reaching as legislation, but in a limited way, they allow the president to issue federal directives in respect to how federal government will operate. And that covers a good amount of ground. Now, President Joe Biden has already 
uh, issued several executive orders. In fact, on the day of his inauguration, with that, within a couple hours, he was already signing pre-drafted executive orders that had some pretty big in- impact. So I want to start by going over a list of just some of these executive orders, and then we'll give some analysis. Uh, executive Order 13993 dealt with immigration. And what Biden was doing here was he was revoking Trump's policy that cracked down on sanctuary cities that were shielding undocumented immigrants uh, from de- uh, from deportation. What this executive or- order also did was promised to address the humanitarian challenges at the border. So it, it wasn't able to to make all the changes there, but it, w- it was promising that it would do that as well. Next, you had Executive Order 13991, which mandated the wearing of masks on federal property. So what this means is they can't Biden can't force you to wear a mask uh, on your street. But if you go on federal property, he can say that you need to wear a mask before you enter onto that federal property. You had Executive Order 13990, which uh, sought to protect public health and the environment. Uh, the, the administration said they will be listening to science, unlike uh, what they're saying Trump did. Uh, they'll be listening to science to tackle the climate crisis and limit exposure to pollutants. So this is saying that we're going to do some serious things when it comes to the environment. Uh, you had Executive Order 13987, which called for a unified response to COVID. This particular order created the position of COVID-19 response coordinator. This response coordinator will advise the president and oversee the distribution of vaccines, tests and other supplies. So that's a big one, especially as we talked about in the article, COVID probably being the number one priority of this administration to begin with. Next, we had Executive Order 13985, which which focused on racial equity. Uh, This order said that the federal government will conduct equity assessments of all of its agencies and reallocate uh, resources to advance equity for all, including people of color. And so people will kind of keep an eye on, on how that turns out and where these resources might go. Then he also did some things like he canceled the Keystone Pipeline project, which was a big deal to a lot of people. He actually had to have some conversation with the folks up in Canada, Canada about that one because they, uh, they they were part of that deal, too. He rejoins uh, the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, and he also paused student loan payments. And in a move that worried a lot of Christians, and we saw a lot of talk about this uh, late last week, Biden also signed an executive order in regard to transgenderism that, according to Ryan T. Anderson, means that boys who identify as girls must be allowed to compete in girls athletic competitions. Men who men who identify as women must be allowed in women only spaces. Healthcare plans must pay for gender trans gender transition procedures and doctors and hospitals must perform those procedures. Now, I would say that this is limited to those who are getting federal funds and so on. So again, this is a executive order. It's not legislation. So there are limits there. But Chris, I just want to kind of get your feel for uh, some of these executive orders in general. And there may be some that I missed that you wanted to talk about as well. Yeah, I mean, there are a number of these uh, executive orders, Justin, that are coming down, as you know, um, for me, it's, it's really not about like picking through all of these executive orders and and looking at which ones do you agree with and, and which ones uh, we don't, at least not for me. I, I mean, one, I would point out that uh, contrary to how some people are talking about this, you don't see now, you didn't see 
President Trump. You didn't see President Obama like remaking the government by executive order, a la Franklin Roosevelt. Right? That's that's not what's happening here. And and when I look at these executive orders, for me, is really about. Um, the broader implications, right? The inability of the legislature to deal with some of these difficult issues. Um, you know, because some of the stuff that the president's doing by executive order is within the prerogative of the president. He's directing the government, uh, the executive branch. Uh, some of the stuff, like the uh, some of the transgender stuff, and, and most of the things that are, are more controversial really need to be dealt with in the legislative uh, process. And we can't even right now in the legislative process have, uh, we're not even having the conversations, at least not in a healthy way. Um, And and when I look at these executive orders, it always points me back to the legislative branch um, and to the fact that we have uh, a a legislature right now that can't have the conversation. We have too many uh, gerrymandered congressional districts, uh, right? I always say that we have many, many more politically monolithic congressional districts in America than we do politically monolithic communities in America. Um, you know, because we gerrymander and we just throw districts all over the place to snatch up voters who kind of vote the same way all the time. Uh, we have the outsized influence of money in our uh, elections. And so we can't get the conversations going on some of these uh, more important issues. And that's what I think about when I look at these executive orders, um, is that we, we kick too many of these things uh, to the to the Article 2 and the Article 3 branches of government uh, when they really should be dealt with in the legislative branch. And, and Biden's executive orders are no different to me. They It just calls out for me the the real need to be able to deal with some of these uh, important issues of our time uh, in the legislative branch. Yeah, that's real. And, and just to reiterate again, executive orders are limited in scope. But also the thing about an executive order, which a lot of folks are are, are feeling now, is that the next administration can just come in and on the first day revert, reverse whatever that executive order uh, is. And so I'm with you, Chris. In many ways, I think Congress has just kind of abdicated the responsibility to deal with these tough issues for all the the, the uh, various reason that, reasons that you named, but they're not necessarily doing their jobs, which is why I, I always just have a problem with how much, you know, congressmen are on Twitter and doing all this other stuff. But y'all aren't, y'all aren't getting at those really tough issues. And so immigration yeah. and all this other stuff are left for executive orders where you can't really have the impact that this that needs to happen to move this country forward. Uh, so I'm with you on that. Something else that I would bring up that goes along with this is the conversation. So when we talk about the executive order about transgenderism, we have to talk about the so-called conflicts between LGBTQ rights and religious liberty. Now, between me and you, we don't think that this necessarily is a conflict or that there has to that you know, LGBTQ rights and religious freedom are mutually exclusive. The AND campaign supports basic civil rights for the for LGBTQ people. Uh, but this is an issue that needs to be dealt with, that doesn't need to be just taken care of in, in the courts. It doesn't need to happen uh, unilaterally where one group just kind of says what they want and get everything. This needs We need to deal with this. Uh, now, the Biden administration in their 100-day uh, plan said they were going to try to pass the Equality Act. Now, the Equality Act basically puts sexual orientation and gender identity in the Civil Rights Act, placing it on par with protections for race. All right. 
Now, the problem here is, is that sexual orientation and gender identity and race are very different in substantive ways. And the law really needs to reflect those differences. So to put those things on par probably isn't the right way to go about it. But the biggest issue with the Equality Act is that it has zero consideration for faith based institutions. And I'm not even talking about just churches. I'm talking about synagogues. I'm talking about our Muslim brothers and sisters. I'm talking about our Jewish brothers and sisters and so on. There is zero. Listen to me. Zero consideration for religious liberty in the Equality Act. And that, to me, makes it a very irresponsible piece of legislation and just not a thoughtful piece of legislation that has really made the rounds and been considered in the way that something this sweeping should be. I mean, it's really a product, uh, uh, Chris, of our broken system uh, where we no longer do the hard work of figuring out how we can live together and how to make these type policies work together. All we do, as I said before, is just have one side write, write down everything that they want for on a particular issue. And the politicians that they fund just move forward with this stuff, even when it hasn't been subject to a healthy debate. Well, this isn't how it was handled in Utah. Utah gave us a perfect example of when two communities who disagree on certain things come together, do the hard work of compromise and make something happen. As you know, Chris, in in Utah, the Mormon community came together with the LGBTQ community and came up with a compromise that allowed both sides to live within their rights and to flourish together. And really, that's what uh, what has to happen. Among other things, though, I think the Equality Act and and the reason that we really are kind of promoting different ways to go about this, the Equality Act uh, could cause a lot of faith based schools and hospitals to close their doors due to excessive lawsuits. These excessive lawsuits that unduly call their convictions, the things that these uh, these organizations have been uh, going by for a long time, call those convictions discriminatory. And so I'll give you an, an, an example, for instance. Uh, These hospitals, these hospitals, these faith based hospitals serve everybody. They save the lives of everybody, including transgender people. They don't turn transgender people or anybody else away. So the the idea that these hospitals should close because they, they believe that doing transgender surgery is actually harmful to people rather than helpful to the people is ridiculous. And I think this really comes down, Chris, and I'll toss it to you. This comes down to the fact that we live in a pluralistic society. And even those people on the left who think they have a whole lot of power or whatever, they still have to deal with this and they still have to live with everybody else in a society and do the hard work of making making this work uh, and living together rather than just trying to get everything that they can get without considering some very big rights of others around society. What do you think? What are your thoughts, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're uh, absolutely right on what you're saying with, with this uh, this whole idea of the Equality Act. And I, I think one thing that you said, Justin, that I, I do hear a lot, and, and I just try to bring this point up, right? Like we talk about faith-based institutions um, and the idea that, that something like the Equality Act uh, as it stands that that wants to make all of these religious institutions and faith-based institutions conform to this one way of thinking. And yes, that does invalidate literally thousands of years of of held belief, right? But this is not just like old religions and old people who've believed stuff for a long time. There are lots and lots of people in the country right now who believe these things, right? Uh, Not just 
who the folks who believed it in the past and the institutional aspect of it. There are folks who believe it right now and who believe that these tenets of our faith uh, have meaningful contributions to make to how we build uh, the future, right? So religious liberty is not just about looking back. Religious liberty is a lot about looking forward, uh, and that's very important to consider uh, when you're thinking about are you going to support something that forces people uh, to to not be able to bring their uh, religious conviction into the public discourse. Uh, it, it is forward-looking as much as, if not more, than it is uh, a, a historical uh, uh, fact. And, and when I think about something like Fairness for All, it goes to this point that we were talking about with executive orders. Um, it, it, to me, you, you have to start thinking about getting something done. Like at some point you have to say, um, if you really believe, as I do, that meaningful protections for LGBTQ people uh, is an important policy objective. It is something that you cannot do as broadly as you need to do it through executive order. Um, you've got to do it through legislation. And the only way to get it done uh, is going to be to have the conversation uh, and, and make some compromises unless you're going to really, really break something uh, in order to get it done. So, I mean, it, it, what I know, um, and Justin, you know this, and anybody who's been around policymaking knows this, two things that no administration and no session of the legislature have in unlimited supply. Number one is time, and number two is political capital. So every single moment, every single act, every executive order, everything that you do is a testament to what your priorities are. And it kind of goes back to what we wrote about in the article. Um, Everything you do is telling us what your priorities are because there is not an unlimited supply of time and there is not an unlimited supply of political will. And so every time you do something, you are spending down that account. And for me, the concern is, do you run out of resources of time and resources of political capital uh, doing these other things before you get to some of these issues that are that are very very important, um, and and you'll hear folks talk about you know, well we can you know walk and chew gum and uh, you know all those types of things that folks will say. But I just encourage everybody who's listening to cut through all of that. No matter people will tell you, oh yeah, we can walk and chew gum, we can do everything. We cannot do everything. There is a limited amount of time in any administration, any session of the legislature, and there is a limited amount of political capital uh, to get stuff done. And that's why I like to see uh, the administration, the legislature focus on the important things, have good conversations and get them done. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that, Chris. Uh, I think you make a very good point about the importance of religious freedom. It isn't just something that we look back and say it's been this way forever. We know that our faith has practical consequences, and I think we have to be able to express our faith and the reason that we should be able to live by our consciences based on practical side of it, too. Letting people know that it's not just because the Bible said there is practical value to the things that we are saying. And if we're going to live in a society where we're not flat, you know, flattening that society, as we talked about last week, with true diversity and pluralism, then we need to have a little more respect. And so I, I would call Christians in general to really take a look at this Equality Act. And I would ask Christians to really push back on it and say, look, 
no LGBTQ lobby. You can't just force this through because it has a, a benevolent name. This needs to be something that goes through a full, thoughtful and healthy debate and that we come together to do the hard work to make sure that we're living together in the best way possible, not just forcing something through because the narrative is trending. Right. We need to take the time because this could have a massive impact on our country in general and in general and specifically on our faith based institutions. And so we need to have we need to have that conversation in a real way. I would ask everyone to take a look at the Fairness for All Act, which is based on that Utah compromise that we saw before. We think that's the best way forward because we don't think that our LGBTQ brothers and sisters should be discriminated on their jobs, should be discriminated against uh, in housing and things of that nature. We can get this done. We can do it. But we can't take the shortcut. And the Equality Act is a shortcut. And it is not. Uh, what we need to be doing. We're going we're gonna to take a quick break and then we'll get back with some more Church Politics Podcast. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption. Written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Okay, we are back. Now, many of you know that the First Amendment Amendment of the Constitution says that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of the press. Freedom of the press is the right to report news or, or circulate opinion without censorship from the government. The founding fathers called this right one of the great bulwarks of liberty. This was adopted as part of the Bill of Rights in 1791 in response to the British government's attempt to prohibit newspapers from publishing unfavorable information and opinions. And as many of you know as well, countries like China are still doing this type of censorship. So it's not something that we should take for granted. Now, before we get into this, Chris, I want to give a shout out to all the journalists who are using the freedom of the press to do their jobs honestly diligently and courageously. We see you. We know you're out there and we appreciate you do. Democracy needs you. The media, as you know, Chris, is one of society's central institutions. Journalism in particular plays a very important role in democracy. The people have to be informed in order to run this constitutional republic and in order to hold their representatives accountable. Voters have to be able to make informed choices for this democracy to run properly. Now, communication is vital to our ability to know what's going on around us and to uncover these hidden agendas and hidden interactions concerning public matters. Now, if we look back in history, we have instances like muckraking journalism by people like Ida Tarbell, who helped uh, take power away from the robber barons whose monopolies and conspiracies were stripping this country of wealth. This was a big move. We can go, you know, even in the progressive era, journalists like Upton Sinclair exposed the terrible work conditions in industrial America in his book, The Jungle. I would advise that everybody take the time to read The Jungle. 
This led what, what Upton Sinclair and others did led to major reforms, including labor laws that changed the standards for American labor and employment uh, since. Uh, and it's really changed how we look at quality of life and things of that nature. Now, Hannah Ardent uh, once said that truth and politics aren't on good terms. The Washington Post said uh, their motto is democracy dies in the dark. And what we should take from this is that without honest journalism to inform the people, we are blind and our democracy suffers. Our journalists are to be like gadflies questioning and prodding for our leaders to be more transparent, to tell us more, to explain things in more detail. Americans have to trust that the press is looking into the dark corners and revealing reality. But here's my question, Chris. What happens when the press starts to put narratives before the truth? What happens when they don't trust the people with the truth? What happens when ideology overrides the facts? Well, unfortunately, people, I think we are finding out the answer to that. According to a report by Axios, trust in the media has declined to an all time low. Fifty percent of Americans agree that uh, agree with the statement that journalists and reporters are purposely trying to mislead people by saying things they know to be false or gross exaggerations. Fifty eight percent think most news is more concerned with ideology or political positions than with informing the public. And what I think we have to recognize, Chris, is that this isn't just about bold-faced lies, right? This is more so about intellectual dishonesty, misleading people by misplaced emphasis, leaving certain facts out, or one-sided reporting that's disguised as objectivity. My friends and I uh, have often talked about uh, how we notice that we can get our articles placed in, in the bigger platforms when we're criticizing the church or especially when we're criticizing white evangelicals, which we do from time to time when we find it necessary. But if we're critical of the secular left, if we're critical of the Democratic Party, if we're critical of progressivism, then it's almost impossible to get placed on some of these platforms because it goes against the narrative. And I think we have to realize how much we hurt our country when we don't have honest journalism that just reports the facts and gives different points of view time in the public space. But Chris, I just want to get a feeling for how you, what you were thinking when it comes to trust in the media and the impact that it could have uh, on our democracy. I mean, I think, Justin, it has a, a tremendous impact. Um, and, and I do think I, I'm, I'm grateful for Axios uh, reporting on uh, on this, this Edelman work uh, that they uh, do on the, these trust metrics, um, because, you know, a free and independent press has been an anchor of our democracy since the beginning of our democracy. And you can really begin to see where people are coming from. Uh, with this thought, right? The, the press doesn't seem to be free and independent anymore. It seems to be bought by and bound to moneyed interest. Uh, and that narrative is there in, in virtually anything you pick up 
uh, anything you watch in the cable news, uh, anything you uh, you know look at in, in print media, you can sit there and, and watch or read coverage of the exact same events uh, in two different outlets and really feel like they're reporting from different planets. Uh, and, and that's problematic. Uh, even social media, right, is not free and independent. It is heavily filtered and manipulated uh, for the purpose of maximizing profits for shareholders and um, and CEOs, and and so it it is it is troubling. Um, you know, one of the things that I have thought about a lot, Justin, is that you know the the Constitution prohibits government uh, from passing any law. Uh, that abridges the freedom of the press. Uh, it does not preclude laws to protect that freedom. Um, and I think uh, at, at this point, this is something that we have to begin to think about because uh, it, it is very hard to get information these days that is not deeply, deeply intertwined with some narrative that some moneyed interest is trying to uh, push forward. Yeah, I mean, we got to pay attention to this. Uh, and and one of the things that bothers me a little bit is that when you see these numbers, these numbers have been very high. I mean, in most of Trump's presidency, the media had less trust than he did. The media had less favorability than he did. Um, and that's something that you would think there would be an outcry and you'd see all these changes, but you don't see the changes. And it makes it makes you wonder why. And I think Chris, that this is even part of the flatness that we talked about last week. And if you guys haven't heard that conversation about flatness and what it means, you need to go back uh, to, to, to our podcast from last week. But some of these journalists who happen to be in the professional class, happen to go to some of these you know, uh, secular universities, seems are more worried about promoting secular progressive ideology than they are about telling the truth. Um, it's almost as they think, almost as if they think American people aren't intelligent enough, and so that they're so they're doing a good thing by pushing narratives because the people again can't be trusted with the truth, and that's condescending and it's plainly wrong. But again, what really bothers me is I don't see like this big worry, like man, they don't trust us. We really need to reform and change. I, you just don't see that happening because it's almost like, well, yeah, they don't trust us but they just don't know the good thing that we're doing. They don't get it. And we're actually doing something that's good by tipping the scale or not talking about a certain perspective. You're not doing us good. And again, thank you to those journalists. And there are many that are doing the right thing, that are fighting in those newsrooms to get the right stuff out there. We really appreciate you. And I just want to give people, because uh, you know, when you talk about MSNBC, you talk about Fox News, people are always asking the AND campaign, where can I go for just a more straight up, uh, news that I can that I can trust. And one place that I, I've started going is Rising, which which is put out by The Hill. It's it's Rising with Crystal Ball and Sagar and Jetty. And they really do a good job. One's a uh, Crystal is a Democrat. Sagar is a Republican. And they give it to both sides. They report what's going on in Washington. Um, they're both somewhat populist. So there is somewhat of a slant there, but they're honest about it. And they tell you a little bit where the slant is, but they really do a good job of analysis and not holding any punches when it comes to assessing both sides, not necessarily saying that both sides are equal, but applying an equal standard to both sides. Uh, any, any final thoughts on this subject, uh, Chris? 
Uh, yeah, so Justin, I, I uh, took the privilege of, of looking more deeply into the Edelman report that uh, that Axios is, is reporting on in the article um, that, that we read together. Uh, and there's some interesting things there that I think may be instructive. One is that when you look at this uh, crisis of trust in the media, it's really part of a larger crisis of trust in institutions across the board. Um, but one of the two places where, where trust uh, really is being booed, at least for the present time, uh, one has to do with like business and stuff. But the other one that's very close behind is local leadership. Um, so folks in the local community. Uh, and then as a as a measure of how to go forward uh there is in the report uh this idea of of what they call uh information hygiene uh and it is the the fact of of, of practicing this, this information hygiene um and, and they report that only one in four uh people are actually practicing good information hygiene. Uh, good information hygiene involves uh, actually engaging with the news, right? A, a lot of people don't now because they don't trust it. More people are not engaging at all. But if you want to practice good information hygiene, you have to engage. Uh, the second principle is to avoid information echo chambers, right? So get information from uh, different perspectives. Uh, the third point of good information hygiene is to verify the information that you're getting through other sources. Um, and then the, the last one is to refuse to amplify unvetted information, right? So one thing that we can all do um, is to begin to practice better information hygiene. Um, I, and I, I think that we can leverage local leadership, right, in our churches, uh, in our communities, to begin to teach people and to help people to practice uh, good information hygiene. I know the AIM campaign, we talk about it all the time, right? Like, don't just parrot stuff that you hear. Don't believe everything that you read uh, or, or see on the news. Um, you know, we even teach that, you know, from an orthodox perspective, even the teaching of scripture, right? To be very Berean with it, right? Listen to the teaching, but then go and search the scriptures and make sure that these things are true. Well, we need to bring a, a sort of Berean approach uh, to news these days and practice this good information hygiene where you hear it, Go make sure it's true, especially before you begin to repeat it and amplify it on whatever platforms you have. Information hygiene. I like that. I think we may use that more often along with uh, the flatness conversation that we talked about earlier. Well, we're going to take a break and then we'll get back to another conversation about honesty. We'll be right back with you. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. 
the Ant Campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we're back on the Church Politics Podcast. For those of you who've been following church politics for some time, you know that we take the issue of race in America very seriously. It's not the only thing we talk about, but this certainly isn't a colorblind or post-racial show. We do our best to educate our listeners on the history of race in America and the impacts of racial dynamics today. We take our time to do that. It's a serious matter. It's a matter that is disserved by theatrics, by understatements, and also by embellishment, which is why with a high level of disappointment, Chris, we have to talk about a tweet from Jamal Bowman, a New York congressman, uh, that he he tweeted this out last week. and, And what he said was this. He said that the filibuster and the electoral college are pillars upholding white supremacy. Now, we know that getting rid of both the filibuster and the Electoral College has has become a progressive cause as of late. Uh, And I'll admit, I think there are some respectable, I don't agree with it, but I think there are some respectable arguments for getting rid of both. Unfortunately, Chris, this isn't one of them. Um, And I've seen this more and more on Twitter where everything we don't like becomes a product of white supremacy or somehow connected to white supremacy or somehow connected to whiteness. If I don't like it and, you know, we've been able to drive this narrative home, I don't like it, then just compare it to whiteness. And everyone who has a problem with uh, how white power has been abused is automatically going to take your side of the argument. That's just not the way it should happen. You know, such statements, in my opinion, might seem convenient in the short term, but it really just trivializes a, a very real issue. Listen, racism in America is a reality for somebody to say that America has a race problem is true. My question is, why mix that with lies? There's enough racism in America that you don't have to exaggerate to get your point across. In this truth efficient dialogue, facts and principles are inconveniences unless they can be weaponized. And that's what we're doing. We're weaponizing this. It seems, as if we see with these tweets, that only the narrative matters. American public discourse today seems totally ill-equipped and unwilling to engage in honest debate. If you think that we should eliminate the filibuster in the Electoral College, argue that in an honest way. I once had a friend tell me that exaggeration is good, that exaggeration is helpful if it drives home the point. And I'll tell you this, Chris, I could not disagree more. Maybe that's somewhat true in literature or something like that. But in the in public discourse, that's wrong. 
especially wrong and especially not true in the long run. Because the Capitol insurrection was a product of lies and exaggeration. I'm not saying that this statement's on the level of that, but that's where when you go down this uh, line of logic, that's where this could lead you. That's where lies and exaggeration can lead you. Constructive debates require intellectual honesty. And intellectual honesty does not allow us to say whatever boosts our argument. We can't say whatever makes our argument more compelling. Credibility, as I talked about in The Hill not too long ago, credibility is currency in public discourse. And American partisans have bankrupted themselves through hyperbole just like this and by denying obvious truths. Our public witness has become so performative that it's almost a sport, Chris, to artfully inflate and misrepresent uh, serious issues with serious consequences. But I want you to hear me out and then I'm going to toss it over. Your cause and your messengers must have integrity. Even your opponents should have reason to believe what you say. That's right. Even those who disagree with you, if they are operating in good faith, should have a level of confidence that you are speaking with an honest tongue. Now, they may deny it. You can't control if they deny it or not, but you can control what comes out of your mouth. You can be responsible and honorable in how you speak. And again, my main problem with this, Chris, is that this type of hyperbole, this type of falsification, it, it trivializes the very issue that the speaker purports to care so much about. If my friend gets hit by a car and I'm trying to get help from him, for him, and I tell people that he was hit by a Lear jet while floating on a cloud, then they're going to be less likely to take me seriously. And as a consequence of that, my friend will suffer based on my lack of veracity. Speak truthfully. If you want people to take your issue seriously, then be serious. Talk about things in an honest and well-measured way. Otherwise, you're doing the issue an injustice and you're not helping the situation. So I got a little bit riled up about this one, uh, Chris. I'm, I'm going to toss it to you and, and, and let you run with it for a second. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right to be riled up. Too many people over too many generations uh, have worked in a serious way uh, on issues of racial justice and racial equity uh, to simply um, begin to trivialize those issues uh, and, and, and try to use them uh, as a, you know, just as a tool to get your way. Um, you know, like you said, Justin, make the argument. Um, if you, think we should just get rid of the filibuster, make the argument. Uh, if you think we should get rid of the electoral college, uh, there's certainly an argument to be made. Make the argument. Uh, but as soon as you begin to just call everything white supremacy, uh, it makes it much, much more difficult to fight white supremacy. And that's where I just feel like, you know, the preacher in me wants to implore us to get a hold of ourselves. 
Doc, like you are not helping the fight. You are confusing the issue. The fact is, the filibuster is a tool. It's a legislative rule, a part of a process. Um, and it has been used in ways even that progressives agree with and disagree with in recent history. Harry Reid got rid of the filibuster on uh, you know, federal appointments, except for the Supreme Court. And you know, Obama appointees started to get through, and the left is happy. Then the Republicans get rid of it in the Supreme Court process, and the left is not happy. Then Donald Trump is calling to get rid of it for his agenda, and the left is against it, the right is for it. Now this, the Democrats have controlled the Senate, and so it's a good thing to get rid of it. It is a tool. It, it would be like me calling a hammer uh, a, a core tool of, of violence and destruction, right? Like, it is not. It's just a hammer. If somebody's trying to destroy, they're going to use it to destroy. If somebody's trying to build, they're going to use it to build. And in order to conclude that simply ending the filibuster is going to contribute significantly to the long-term fight for racial justice in America, one would have to assume that the Senate will never again have a majority that does not have a pro-racial justice agenda. In fact, we'd have to assume that we do currently have a majority that has a pro-racial justice agenda, which is not in every way identical with a broad progressive agenda. Uh, and so the, the statement itself and the conflation of, of, of issues and ideas that are not the same, um, it makes it more difficult to fight the fight, right? Like this is not about not fighting the fight, right? This is not about... Um, stepping away from fighting against white supremacy and fighting for racial justice in America. I am in that fight. My problem is that a statement like that, especially from an African-American congressperson, makes the fight harder. And I'm saying, let's get a hold of ourselves so that we keep the main thing the main thing and, and, and don't cloud issues in the fight, because it's a real fight. We have to fight it, and this is only making it uh, more difficult to do. Very well put, brother. Let me say this too: Th this tweet, and it was it was a you know it was a kind of a line of tweets. It was a thread. This tweet got five thousand retweets, over five maybe over five thousand retweets, and tens of thousands of likes. Which means not only is this getting put out there, it's being incentivized. We have to watch what we incentivize, because it seems like the question that we're asking is, are you hitting on an issue that fits my narrative? And how witty is your exaggeration? Not is this true? Not is this helpful down the line? We need to focus on the truth and, and real honest, intellectually honest arguments. To say that the, the, the filibuster, which, as you pointed out, Chris, is a pillar upholding White supremacy? Come on, man. It's just not helpful. It's not serious, and it's not helpful to the conversation. This is Twitter speak. This is speaking to your 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 tribe on Twitter and getting them excited and, 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 and getting them to feel like their narrative is, is stronger now because I've now taken the worst thing in American society and I tied it to every other thing I just don't like. Whether or not, whether or not they have a true relationship 
And so we just got to watch that, man. I think as leaders, it's just irresponsible to talk about serious issues in this manner. Make the argument. Make it honestly. Like I said before, I'll repeat it. Credibility is currency in public discourse. And neither party has a whole lot of credibility, has a whole lot of capital when it comes to that conversation. I don't care who you're arguing with. When you look at somebody like MLK, when you look at somebody like Frederick Douglass, when you look at somebody like Fannie Lou Hamer, their opponents had a reason to think they were telling the truth, whether they agreed with them or not. They had reason to think that they were being intellectually honest, whether they agreed with them or not. You should go out to make sure that your opponents cannot say that you're a liar or that you are you're just hyperbolic for no reason. It hurts the cause. It hurts. It hurts what you're trying to do at the end of the day, even if in the moment it gets you the likes and gets you the retweets. I'll let you I'll let you end it, Chris. Yeah, I I just also remind us that in, in addition to everything that we've already pointed out, it also can engender a false sense of hope. You know, you think that you're doing something good for the long term and people will begin to think uh, that they're benefiting until, as we just saw, I mean, somebody new comes in and uses the same uh, stuff that that you, you know, uh, started in the name of, you know, fighting white supremacy to advance the cause of, of white supremacy and set back. Uh, the the fight for uh, racial equity and racial justice. Um, so you you and you don't want to give this false hope. You don't want to lower the standard of truth because you you come out and say something like that, and 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 even if you're against the filibuster and against the the, the electoral college, you make that argument. Now all the other side has to do is prove that it's not white supremacy, right? They don't have to prove now that it's good policy, good just that it's not white supremacy. You know, so it's it's just. It's bad for everything except Twitter. It's just crazy when we do it. It is, man. I said I was going to give you the last word. I got one more thing to say, though, and I, and I, I missed this. There you go. What I don't want to see people do is take this, because I've heard people say, with all this hyperbole and the way that people talk about race and white supremacy, that makes me not want to even engage in it. Why even engage when people do it? It turns people off from fighting justice. Let me be very clear. That's a terrible excuse for a Christian. Mm-hmm. I don't care what anybody's saying or what hyperbole they're using. If it's a matter of justice, if it's a matter of righteousness, if it's a matter of doing what's right and being about your father's business, somebody else's hyperbole or somebody else's dishonesty should have no impact on whether you're going to do the right thing or not. So what we're not doing is saying that this gives people an excuse not to care about race, not to care about white supremacy and all those things. Terrible excuse for a Christian. I hope nobody uh, is using that excuse. Well, here we are at the end and campaign. As usual, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp. Well, I'll let you. I say kingdom, come to me, rest in me, kingdom.
This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's MA in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu/hdl.